Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here, to sit under it. Um, and I sit under it as well. We, we all approach this task with a, a submissive uh, attitude. We pray that you would allow us to see um, the fruit of it in, in our church. God, so we ask for your grace in these next few moments. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, every once in a while, um, oh, by the way, if you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up. We'll bring you a Bible. We want to make sure that you're there uh, with us. So if you need one, just lift your hand up. We'll, we'll bring you one. If you don't own one, keep it. Uh, you can keep it. Um, but every once in a while, you'll come across a passage of Scripture that completely runs against the grain of surrounding culture. And so you're, you're, you're asked to make a choice between two Bibles, the Bible of what culture says loudly, clearly, repeatedly, and the, the Bible that you now hold, hopefully that you're now holding in your hands. Uh, you have to make a choice. Do you reinterpret things? Oh, never mind, it doesn't actually say that. It actually says something else. Uh, in order to court, sort of conform to what culture says? Or do you say, I know culture changes, people's voices change, people's opinions change, but there's still something here that's solid that doesn't change. You, you have to make that choice, and you'll be asked to make that choice over and over as culture keeps changing. Now, it's possible that we have interpreted things wrongly, and that new situations prompt us to go back and look at a passage again and go, wait, do we have this right? And we always have to maintain that posture. Wait a minute, do I have this right? We don't want to go, blah, 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 shut up. I had this right. I read it one time. My pastor taught it one time. And that's what it says. That I'm not going to listen to anything else. You don't want to, yeah, that's not the right attitude to take. But revisiting something and reshaping it, that's a different matter altogether. I want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, some of you know me more than others. Some of you, maybe this is your first time. Um, I, I, when it comes to the topic of today's passage, which is the role of women in ministry, the question really is, uh, can women be pastors? Can women preach in a church? Can a woman stand up here and do? Um, not, not can they, may they. Um, I wrestled with that all through uh, my undergraduate at Moody and really all through uh, my time at Trinity. And then it's when I graduated and came here to this church, I realized, how am I going to lead a church and I don't have a clear answer to that question? Like, I have to have a clear answer to that question. Yes or no. If, if, if a woman wants to be an elder, it, it's yes or no. There are some things that a church can just kind of waffle on and go, look, we're not sure, we have a mixture, yes, no, sometimes yes. And then there are some things where you just have to make a decision. You either do or do not baptize babies. That doesn't mean all churches that baptize babies or don't baptize babies, they're all going to hell if you make a decision on one side. But you have to make a decision. If a family comes to you with their infant, they say, baptize this infant, yes or no. And so there are things that a church has to take a stand on. And you want to do right by what Scripture says. Now, my story is one where my background, 
I mean, my grandmother was like a famous evangelist in Puerto Rico, and uh, you know, in my own home, my dad was kind of a spiritual derelict, and my mom was the stalwart matriarch of the family. And so if anyone has a desire to, to see women flourishing in, in leadership roles, if anyone sees uh, leadership qualities in women, uh, how well-spoken women are and, and intelligent, that's me. So I said, okay, I'm going to grab commentaries and I'm going to read some articles. And I even got some, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not that old. It's just the library was that old, okay? But cassette tapes. <laughs> I remember digging through cassette tapes. And they were cassette tapes of debates. And I'm like, I'm going to listen to some debates. Okay. Now, this isn't everyone's experience, but in my experience, every, every book I read, every article I read, uh, kept pointing in the same direction, that uh, there's a limitation to the roles of women in ministry in the church, that in fact women should not function in the role of elder, they should not teach authoritatively over men. I listened to one debate, and the uh, the 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 person representing the egalitarian position, I'm going to use bigger words because they'll come up in the sermon, but egalitarian means equality, right? Whatever a man can do, a woman can do, and maybe even better. <laughs> egalitarian is equal. Complementarian is different roles. They complement one another, but there's, there's, there's gender specificity in terms of some roles in the church. A complementarian position. So I listened to the first debate and the complementarian that women can't be pastors in the church. That doesn't devalue them or degrade them, but there's a different role. In my opinion, completely mopped the floor with the egalitarian. I'm like, well, maybe it was just that debate. Maybe it was just a week. I put in the next tape. Different complementarian, different person representing the egalitarian. Complementarian went first. The egalitarian went up and said, look, I'm not even really egalitarian. I just thought somebody should represent the other side. It was terrible. This week I was reading a book. Um, I was reading a book, and this particular entry was by uh, Tom Schreiner, who's a, a very popular uh, New Testament scholar. And I, I, I remember my attention being uh, pricked because I'm reading the intro to his chapter, and he started out the same way. I had a desire to see the egalitarian position. I actually wanted to conclude that the egalitarian position was correct. But book after book, article after article, I kept reading. The evidence, studying the scripture, it, it just doesn't seem to pan out that way. So he said he has a friend, also a New Testament scholar. And he went up to this friend and said, I, I want to conclude your position. Like, I want to be in, on your side that all ministry offices are open to women. But I just feel like you have to leap over the evidence to get there. And his friend told him, you know what, Tom, you're right. Make that leap. Make that leap, Tom. Schools, churches continue to experience the surrounding pressure that if you don't see women as completely, all positions completely available to, to women as, as much as to men, you know, you're, you're a Neanderthal. You are, uh, your head is buried in the sand. You're, 
you're dumb. And uh, I think that's, that's a temptation we need to be careful with. So here's what I want to do. We're going to open to this passage. This passage only. We'll be referencing at least one more. But we're going to be looking in 1 Timothy 2. And let's try to just do some honest work. And the question of whether it offends or runs against the grain, let's put that on hold for a second and try to just let Scripture speak as, as clearly as we can allow it. We all approach with biases, and we can't really ever just approach Scripture with a complete blank slate, but we can try. We can try to say, okay, I, I do have what I want. Let's be honest with what I want the text to say, but then try to just put that on hold a second and just try to let the text have its voice. So 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll just look at verses 8 through 10 first just to establish the fact that Paul is not shy about making gender distinctions. Uh, and to be, to be clear, we've moved from uh, women uh, should be equal to men in all things to like what even is men and women? Like what even is that? That's, that's where we are today. Paul has no problem saying, hey, men, I've got a word for you. Hey, women, I've got a different word for you. Now, that doesn't mean men have nothing to learn from what he says to the women and that women have nothing to learn from what he says to men, but it does establish the fact that there are men and there are women. There's a distinction. And he says in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Does that mean women never get angry? Does that mean that women never quarrel? No, but... You know, rage can look a little different when there's testosterone behind it. And so he wants men to pray. First of all, I mean, my, my experience, uh, ladies tend to uh, outnumber the men, especially in prayer meetings. And he's like, no, you pray. But don't pray quarreling and, and arguing. Don't use prayers. Oh, Lord, this idiot next to me. Like, don't use prayers to leverage your position, you know what I mean? Like, don't do that. Pray without anger and without quarreling. And then verse 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Does that mean men can dress immodestly? That men can, can lack self-control? Well, No. But is there a sense in which women experience uh, a different kind of pressure to dress a certain way? Yeah, I think so. I think so. When you're waiting to go to that dinner, and you're standing at the doorway and you're waiting because your wife is still getting ready, you can be a little more sensitive, I think. I think we can be a little bit more sensitive because there's pressures, right? You can, like, you forgot to shave. If you forgot to comb your hair, you know, <laughs> I shave mine off. Like, I don't have to worry about, when's my next haircut appointment? I, right? 
Women can't do that kind of stuff. I do think as, as dads, we do want to make sure that our daughters uh, don't give in to that kind of pressure to the point where they feel like they've got to spend three hours just to go to Walgreens. And so with this pressure to look a certain way, this is ancient. And Paul is saying, uh, he's not saying, I don't think that there's something inherently wrong with gold or that there's something inherently wrong with pearls. What he's saying is if you see your value rising with the amount of pearls around your neck, you've got a problem. You can't go somewhere because you don't have the gold on. That's, that's an issue. Nobody knows what your face actually looks like because you only go out in public if you spend three hours putting on a different face, YouTubing for hours how to make your face work the shadows. And Is there something inherently wrong with makeup? No. Is there a problem if you're spending three hours just to go down the street to get an ice cream? Like, yeah, probably. So... Modesty and self-control. Everybody wants to be paid attention to. How does a guy get attention? Well, he might get angry. He might win arguments. A girl might wear something a little shorter, a little lower cut. And he's like, no, don't see your value that way. Don't get attention that way. Adorn yourself with godliness. So notice he doesn't say adorn yourself with burlap sacks. Right? Adorn yourself by not adorning yourself. He's contrasting it with an attitude. He's contrasting it with a spirit, which is humility and modesty. And so again, gold isn't evil. He's trying to get what's underneath that. Why do you spend so much time posing in the mirror? Why, why so many selfie shots? Why do you try on 15 outfits before you can finally decide to go and get in the car? Why? 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 He wants to know. It's not the clothing, it's the attitude underneath the clothing. So I didn't want to just blow past those verses to get to the more controversial stuff, but I do, did want to just pause there a minute, unpack that a little bit. Um, and if guys need to be a little bit more, if, if husbands need to be a little bit more patient with wives getting ready and understanding that there's this pressure, I think maybe... Moms can be a little more understanding, perhaps, of dads who want to protect their daughters and send their daughters back to the room three times before the outfit's right. Let the dad protect the girls. Everyone else is wearing it shouldn't be at the top of uh, the rubric of our dress code in the house. Right. Okay, so God, so... Paul sees, hey, men, here's an issue. Hey, women, here's an issue. And he has no problem um, pointing at a gender in the congregation and, and, and uh, going after a particular issue. But then verse 11 to uh, 15, is, it's a little bit different. This is a little bit more uh, universal. This is a little bit more specific, and it's specific to women. And it can easily look like, my goodness, he gives verse 8 to men and then 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 is to women. Um, I don't think we should just see it that way. One verse versus the other verses, how much ink is spilled. But I think it's a difficult issue 
And it's not just a difficult issue today. It's always been a difficult issue, and that's why it's, it takes a little longer to unpack it. And so what I think these verses are teaching us, and for some of you, it's like, okay, well, yeah. And for some of us, not. We've been taught differently. Our backgrounds are different. Of course, the culture out there, <laughs> very different. But I think what these verses teach clearly are that women are not to exercise authority over men in the church because God designed it that way. Not because women are lesser. Women are unable to do it. Women are lack of, you know, there's a lack of competence there. No. Because God designed it that way, that's why. Let's look at it. It says, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there's, there's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> Okay, there's, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, so I hope you had a big breakfast. No, we'll, we'll, try to move through at a, we'll try to move through at a decent clip. Okay, what I want to do is look at these through the lenses of common objections. Because we've been here before. You can, you can go on our website and go back. I don't remember when it was last year or something. We've been in this text not all that long ago. So for this time, I want to look at it through the lens of objections. And then let's go to the text and see if that objection holds true. Objections to what? The statement that women should not teach authoritatively over men in the church. Okay? People object to that, and they say, well, you're not reading the text correctly or something like that. I can't cover all the objections. Some of you may have objections in your mind that I don't cover. Email me. You know, We'll, we'll talk. Uh, that's fine. But here's just some of them. Uh, the fact that Paul is the one saying, I don't permit. Almost as if Paul is saying, I mean, you guys do what you want, but if, as long as it's my church that I planted, do what I'm saying, but other churches, they could do whatever. Uh, that runs against the grain of all of what he teaches about apostolic authority. Some people say, well, he's saying permission. Like permission is softer, you know, like when you permit something. Uh, yeah, but he says, I do not permit. And that's a categorical no. I do not permit. Uh, so it's not to soften it, it's actually to strengthen it, to say that I do not permit something. If you tell your child, I do not permit glasses on the table without a coaster. That doesn't mean, oh, okay, so you mean I can use the coaster or maybe sometimes I don't have to use the coaster? No, I do not permit glasses without a coaster. That means always use a coaster. So it's not a softening of the language at all. Here's a real common one. Uh, well, it was a cultural thing. It was a cultural thing. Which it's, it's almost surprising that it's that common of an objection. I mean, if it was culturally acceptable for women uh, to teach, um, or, or if it was culturally acceptable for women to not teach, why would he have to bring it up? He brings it up because, of course, they were experiencing the same pressure that we experience in our culture today. It's the same pressure. But you'll notice that he doesn't tie his reasoning to culture. 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness in verse 11. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, verse 12. And then he gives his reasoning in verse 13. For culture demands it. No. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he goes back to the creation order, not a cultural order. He's, he's bringing Genesis into this. And it's this way of saying, it's always been this way. This is by design. This isn't me being uh, a male chauvinist. This isn't about the, the, I'm reading the temperature of Ephesus, which is where Timothy's church was. Let's read the temperature of Ephesus. What are Ephesian women like? Oh, they're like this? Okay, let me, he's going back to Adam and Eve. And so because he goes back to a creation order, we see that there's some design at play that transcends culture. As long as there are men and women and churches, this, this applies in a way that is rooted in God's created order. Another objection is that what it means is that a woman should not usurp authority, like seize it. Nobody gave her that authority, but she just got up one day and grabbed the mic and was like, all right, sit down. She did the Kanye West on Pastor Lucas, right? She just got up there and was like, all right, I'm going to let you talk in a minute, but blah, 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 blah. And that's what Paul means. He's snatching authority, seizing authority, taking authority when it hasn't been given to her. The problem with that is that's a more sexist reading than the complementarian reading. Why do you say that? The reason why I say that is because he doesn't say against men. Does that mean men can just come up here and grab a mic? You could be right off the street, just could come up, come on up. Oh, I'll sit down, you're male. Well, no. And in fact, I think a lot of the objections are actually more sexist than the complementarian position because they'll say, well, it's because women were uneducated. Oh, that's interesting. So he was fine with uneducated men teaching? Oh, that's because back then a lot of the women, they didn't understand doctrine. Okay, so men that didn't understand doctrine could get up and teach? Are you saying all women were uneducated? All women knew nothing? There were no competent women back then? See, that's not the complementarian position. Complementarian position is, yes, there are educated women. Yes, women are very competent. That's, that's not the issue at all. But there's a created order to things that's not based on merit. Who's got the best education? Let that person speak. Who's got the best? That's not, that's not it. It's not a competition. But these other objections would seem to turn it into a competition. If the, if the reasoning was women shouldn't teach, the women that are uneducated shouldn't teach. Well, why should the men who are uneducated teach? In fact, he just threw Hymenaeus and Alexander under the bus. These are two guys that he handed over to Satan, and they're males teaching, and they shouldn't be teaching. Why? Because they're not teaching rightly. So he could have easily just said, anybody shouldn't seize authority, right? No matter who they are. So I don't think it's seizing authority. I think it's just having authority. So there are churches that would say, well, as long as the elders approve it, the women can do whatever. Like, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. I'm not allowed, by virtue of being a pastor or as elders, we're not allowed to now condone something that the Bible says we shouldn't condone. By virtue of our office as elders doesn't mean we can just kind of reverse Scripture in a church. In fact, we are now disqualified if we do that. So it's not based on education. 
It's not based on culture. It's not based on whether they were teaching false teaching or not. It's based on the created order. Something that I hear very often is, but, but I know women who are fill in the blank. I know women who are really smart. Well, that doesn't make sense. I know, I know Scripture says this, but I know women who are really great leaders. I know that Scripture says this, but I know women who are really, they're really good preachers. I know of a woman who's a pastor at a church, and the church seems fine. See, we're appealing to modern examples that don't seem to square with Scripture to us, and there's an underlying tone of like, so let me just pretend like Scripture didn't say that, because look at these other examples. That's a very dangerous position to hold. You can look at the text that we'll be looking at next time with the qualifications of elders. One of the qualifications of an elder is that he should be uh, able to teach, knowledgeable about doctrine and able to impart doctrine to people. But we could apply the same reasoning. Well, I know a guy who doesn't know anything about doctrine. He doesn't know a lick about the Bible. But he's a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He's a great leader. Why can't he be an elder? Because the text says he needs to be able to teach doctrine. That's why. No, no one's disparaging the fact that he has great leadership qualities, right? But the argument, the argument is it doesn't make sense. We don't say, uh, I see the qualifications here that an elder should not be a recent convert. But this guy, has he's a philanthropist. He's gone overseas more than all of our missionaries combined. He has portions of Scripture memorized already. Okay, he got saved last week, but why shouldn't he be an elder? Because he says that he shouldn't be a recent convert. <laughs> it's not about, look at all these other qualities. Well, what does that mean? Look at all these qualities and pay no attention to what the text actually says right here? Paul is not saying women don't have anything to add. Paul is not saying women can't be competent in many areas. That's not his argument. His argument is that there's a created order. And if we do things in a church without regard to that order, then we'll have a church that is in disorder. He talks nothing about competence or education or knowledge, uh, you know, knowledge level, intelligence level, IQ, Another one that we'll hear often is, what if, what if you're in a situation where there's no men available? Well, pray that God will raise men up. Maybe some places you need a Priscilla and Aquila to take a guy aside and in the home train him. But it's interesting how people say, well, what, what about Priscilla? I'm like, yeah, what about Aquila? <laughs> He's there too. You, you would think that Priscilla was just like planting churches, you know, teaching, correcting Paul. Like you have a couple who trained the guy, okay? That's fine. I think if no men are available, you get into a Deborah situation where it's interesting where, you know, egalitarians will say, well, what about Deborah? You know, in, in the book of Judges, there were no men available, and so she stepped in. Ooh, did she? Did she? Or did she go to Barak, the guy who was supposed to be stepping up and 
Yeah, she slapped them around a little bit. Like, hey, you need to be doing what God has called you to do. Deborah is definitely the hero in the story, but it's not because she took the role that she wasn't supposed to take. It's because she recognized the guy that's supposed to be doing the role that he was supposed to take. And so we do need Deborahs, and we do need women to to put a little charge into lackadaisical, apathetic, marginalized men in the church. And we don't want to take a, uh, something that's messed up about a church and make that the norm. Where the women are the ones that show up on time. The women are the ones that show up at the prayer meetings. The women are the ones that are memorizing scripture. If anything spiritual is happening in the home, it's because the woman, women are doing it. The moms are doing it. Everything that the kids learn about God and faith is because the mom is doing it. That's not normal. It shouldn't be normal. So we don't want to take bad model, and say, well, look, that's, that's normal. No, it's not supposed to be normal. Does that mean women shouldn't read verses to their kids? No, it means men should step up. So yes, we lack, oftentimes we lack male leadership in situations, but, you know, this church is pretty new in Ephesus, and Paul's teaching Timothy to raise up elders who are male. It might take time to raise them up, to train them, but we need to, we need to train them. This is one of the reasons why the men's retreat is so important. I, I mean, we have to start somewhere. Where's the women's retreat? Right? It's, not, it's, not, it's not because we disparage women. It's because we need to get our guys going. And for those of you who are wives, you, you should, I hope, want that. You, you want that. And for many of us, we have... Couples where the wife is really strong, spiritually strong. She's in the word. She's studying and she's digging. And guys sometimes are intimidated by that. You know, they'd rather pop a hood and I'm familiar with this stuff in here. This is my area. This is my zone. The stuff that's in my man cave and in my garage, that's my zone. And then we kind of relegate Bible stuff to women and children. And and that's not the case. We need to kind of retake the ground where guys exert some leadership here. And we don't want to become an, an over-feminized society within the church. Not because there's something wrong with women, but because that would mean there's something going on with the guys. Where are the guys at? So, yes, we want to champion women. But we need to recognize that if there's a dearth of men that are available and qualified, it's because we're not training them. And we need to be doing that. And we'll see some of that next time when we talk about the qualifications of overseers. So I think what we see here is Paul moving from a specific rule to a broader principle. Teaching is an example of the exertion of authority that he's talking about. So he's not saying only teaching is the issue, but a woman can be an elder or a pastor as long as she doesn't teach. That's not what he's saying. In fact, teaching is... Part and parcel with the role of elder. That's why elders are supposed to be able to teach. So they kind of go together. One is a broader principle, teaching, and then the broader principle is exercising authority. Now, precise details past that, churches kind of have to hammer that out. And I think we have to allow some leeway where churches need to figure that out, right? The, the, the gray areas that aren't spelled out. Can a woman teach math? Can she teach arts? 
Can she teach music? Can she teach a male how to play an instrument? I think for most of those, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, can she teach church history? Can she teach doctrine, but without a you shall obey, but just like historically, Calvin said this, and historically, Edward said that. Can she do that? And those are, can she teach teenagers? Most complementarian churches, well, she can teach children, but like, when is a child not a child anymore? Can she teach your 17-year-old? How about 18? Look, we're not going to squeeze that out of this text. And each, pa- each church is going to have to try to figure out how do we respect the rule, which is to not teach authoritatively over men or to have authority over men in those teaching-specific roles especially. Um, we need to hammer that out. We're not going to do that all in the sermon, but those are, those are areas where even complementarian churches differ from one another in those things. Can she stand up and pray in front of the congregation? Can she lead worship? What do you mean by lead worship? Can she play through the songs, or do you want her in between the songs to say a verse and say, you guys should worship this way? Oop. Right? What do you want from the worship leader? So th- Those are things that you have to debate and figure out and talk and, and work out, but underneath the rubric that we don't want to scrub out. The rubric being that women should not exercise authority over men in the church because God designed it that way. A couple quick notes. <clears throat> when he says he wants her quiet, quiet with respect to what? Well, quiet with respect to teaching authoritatively, not quiet with respect to as soon as your foot touches to get right past the door jam, it's utter silence, woman, until you leave the door jam. Once we get in the parking lot, you can be a chatterbox if you want to, but in the threshold of the sanctuary, that doesn't make sense. Quiet with respect to what? Well, respect to authoritative public teaching. That's it. That's it. Not quiet with respect to praying, singing, talking, sharing, you know, that. No, I think that goes beyond. So that's what he means by quiet. And then as we look at this passage in Genesis, I mean, we're not going to Genesis, but as he refers back to Genesis, that's his, uh, that created order is the reasoning, right, that he gives in verse 13. Why am I saying this? And it's not because of culture, it's not because of education, it's not because there's no men around, it's because, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. I don't think that means uh, because, you know, Adam called shotgun, like he got there first. You know, Adam had first dibs, you know what I mean? Like he, he just, whoever's first. Uh, well, no, I mean, animals were before that, right? Uh, so that, it's not chronological order, but it's an established order based on purpose, not based on timing. And if you go back to Genesis, you realize why Eve was created. She was created to be uh, a help meet to him. He wasn't created to be a help meet to her. And so there's an order there that's not, it goes beyond timing. It goes to the functionality of her very creation. Adam is missing something, and she's created to supply that. But he's still the head. And so throughout the Old Testament, they're not longing for a second Eve, but a second Adam. What, was the Eve's sin didn't count? Well, it didn't count the same way that Adam's sin counted. Why, because Adam's better? No, no. He's the failed Adam. It's because he was the head. And so in verse 14, 
Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I don't think we want to import. See, women are always deceived easily. Well, which is worse? She didn't know what she was doing, and he did. Which is worse? Oops, I, I actually got tricked. Versus, no, I didn't get tricked. I just straight up disobeyed. But what was happening there? What was happening there is the serpent didn't go to the head. He wanted to inverse the order. I'm going to have the man follow the woman instead of the woman follow the man. And I'm going to do that by getting her to bite first, and then he's going to bite. I'm going to flip this thing upside down. Is that a problem? Yeah, I think that's a problem. That's satanic. How far are we willing to follow culture down that path? Come on, church. Your women aren't equal to men. Oh, sorry, culture. Let's make our women equal to men. Let's have a woman pastor. You still have men bathroom, women bathroom, church? Oh, sorry, culture. Let's not have genders anymore. You still have a women's small group? What is wrong with you? Oh, sorry. We'll just have small groups. You want to keep going down that path? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, does it look great on us to the culture? No. I mean, were they getting thrown to lions and sawn in half? Like, they were hated. So, of course, culture is going to hate on it. And we don't do things just because culture hates it. But we want to respect what Scripture is saying. He ties it to the created order. That Adam was deceived, that was not deceived, the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. There's this reversal of the order there. And then we got the really weird verse in verse 15. Some of you were probably like, is he going to address that? Because this is weird. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. As long as you just have babies, you're good. Uh, wow. That's tough. Setting aside for a moment the issue of women who can't have babies or women who die before they're able to have a chance to have a baby, it's hard to square this with all the rest of what Paul teaches about how we're justified if he's saying the reason, the way you get saved is by doing something to earn it. And that you earn your salvation through having a baby. That just doesn't, it doesn't make sense with the rest of Scripture. That we're saved totally by grace and by what Jesus did on the cross. Not anything that we can do. Okay. He also commends singleness in other places. If you're single, just stay single, man. You're just gonna, it's just, marriage is really hard. It's going to distract you from the gospel. There's his premarital advice. Rethink this. You know, that doesn't mean Paul is against marriage. He's just saying, here's a category that sometimes we don't pay attention to. It's a legitimate category of celibacy and singleness. It's legitimate. How can he say that in one place and the other places? The way that a woman gets saved is if she has a baby. That doesn't make sense. Now, here's a couple ways that it's been handled. One way is some uh, scholars who are complementarian, but what they'll say is that uh, it's not that having children saves her, because all the good works that we do don't save us, but that good works flow from being saved. And you've heard me say that over and over, especially as we went through Leviticus. 
if you're actually in relationship with God, it looks like something. You do things. It's not that the things that you do earn the relationship with God, but when you're in the relationship with God by grace, it pours out into your life into doing things. And these scholars would say one of those things is having babies. Not for every woman, but for a lot of women, that's one of the good things that you should be doing. Okay. I think it's a little deeper than that. I think he's still channeling what we're seeing in Genesis. And you remember in Genesis, God steps into the situation, fallenness has happened, sin has happened, and he curses the serpent. And when he curses the woman, he talks about childbearing, that it's going to be through pain, increased pain. I don't know if childbearing before the fall was just like euphoric or something, but, but increased pain. It never was supposed to be as painful as it's experienced today. But then he wedges in there in verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15, this promise right, of a seed that will come from the woman who will eventually defeat the serpent. You remember that. And the serpent is going to uh, bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And for the rest of Scripture, we're looking for that seed to come. Which one is it? Is it him? Is it him? Is it Isaac? Is it David? And it keeps pushing that longing forward until you get to the Gospels. The Gospel writers are like, here he is, the serpent crusher. He goes right into the wilderness, and Satan tries to tempt him, and he defeats him. I think Paul is still channeling that and saying that women play the special role through childbearing, not in individual homes, having a baby, having a baby, but woman, capital W, having eventually the child, capital C, who fixes all things. And so I think he's referring to Genesis where, yes, she played that role in being deceived. Adam, as a head, fell. But the way in which we get a new head is back through that childbearing function of the woman. So this doesn't mean go home, have a baby, and, you know, you've got a mansion in heaven. I think this means your only hope of heaven is through childbearing that culminated in a serpent-crushing seed. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So the underlying message of all this is, yes, we can talk about gender roles and debate it, but why are there gender roles? There's a created order. Why do we, why do we get uncomfortable with that created order? Because Satan reversed it, and it put us into this mess in the first place. Reversing that order put us into this mess in the first place. So how do we fix that? By just fixing the order? No, we need to fix the order, but the real fix is what the order represents and what came through that blessing on the other side of the curse, which is this son, Jesus Christ, who came to be the next Adam, the next head, the next representative who stood the test against temptation lived the life we couldn't live, and then he took the death that we were supposed to take, came on the other side of it, defeating death, to invite us into something more beautiful than we can design. And I think that's an important aspect here that we miss. We apologize for this like it's ugly. I'm sorry, I know it just sounds so dumb, but I mean, it's like what Scripture says, and like we're embarrassed about 1 Timothy 2. That's only because we live in this crazy culture. We're not supposed to be embarrassed about Scripture. Scripture is beautiful. It presents what's beautiful. And we need to kind of 
allow our consciences to be massaged so that what we see actually out there in culture, we see where it's going, and we see that that's actually an ugly direction. That actually denigrates women. Women, you're not special. You're not special. You're just man. A man can do it, you can do it. There's no difference. Is that beautiful, just flattening everything? Just flatten all of it? Is that beautiful? Or is there beauty in variety? Is there beauty in complementary roles? I think it's very interesting that if you go back to Genesis, if there's any desire of women to usurp that role and take authority where it's not given, does that surprise God? He said that's what will happen. You'll, you'll want to master the husband as a result of the fall. So it's, it makes sense. It makes sense that culture will go in this direction and that as churches we feel this, uh, maybe this cultural pressure or uh, whatever kind of pressure to adjust and say, you know, you know what, yeah, we can have women pastors, but it doesn't jive with Scripture. And we don't want to take that leap. We don't want to leap over evidence in the Bible. That's just a bad recipe. We want to take it for face value and go, okay, I have my idea of how things should be, but let, let's let the Lord speak through this passage, through all its passages, all the passages of Scripture, and let's let the canon of Scripture overpower the canon of culture. That's needed. We need to think about ways that we should honor our women. And I think, of course, we need to be utterly thankful for the role that women play in 2.15 because if it weren't for that function of childbearing, we wouldn't get the Messiah. I think God designed it that way, and it's a beautiful thing. And I think if we feel like there's a lack of male leadership and responsibility in any particular church, then we need to massage that and pray for that and train men. We don't want to reverse what Scripture says either. Let's, let's pray that we can do right by that as the worship team comes back. Father, sometimes hard words, for some of us maybe we've not heard this before um, or we've bought into some of these other objections or maybe there's other objections that weren't raised today that we're still wrestling with, grappling with. And God, I know for myself I don't have every single thing figured out. Uh, none of us here really does. But... Uh, we want to do right by your word. I thank you for uh, the women in this church. I thank you for so many of the women in this church where if we didn't preach it the way that we just did, they would call it, our attention to it uh, and hold, our, uh, hold us accountable to what Scripture actually says. So, Father, we pray that as we close, we'd be leaving with our hearts ringing not just the value of gender distinctiveness and complementary roles, but, but, but what all is underneath all of that, this gospel story, that is beautiful. We've all fallen, we're all sinful, and you've provided this mediator between God and all, and all of us that we can have this bridge reconnected to you through Jesus Christ. So we close worshiping you for that, thanking you for that, and reveling in that. Allow our hearts to align with it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.